The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. I'm going to open this morning with a poem from one of my favorite poets. His name is Billy Collins. He was the Poet Laureate for the United States a number of years ago. Um, If you've not discovered the poetry of Billy Collins, and if you're somebody who says, I want to like poetry, I don't know how, I feel a disconnect with it, Billy Collins is your guy. Start there. (laughs) In fact, there's, a, there's an NP, NPR did a, you can get this on iTunes, NPR did an evening with Billy Collins, Bill Murray introduced him, uh, and it was, it's just wonderful to listen to him read. So I'm going to read a Billy Collins poem, he reads it better, um, but it's a Mother's Day poem in a way, and it's also a parable, uh, I would say, it's a parable for how we, um, how people of faith typically interact in our exchange with our God. And so, here it is. This poem is called The Lanyard. The other day as I was ricocheting... Sorry, let me start again. Sorry, Billy. The other day I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one, if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, 
laid cold face cloths on my forehead and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Billy Collins. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic, isn't it? Yep. They're clapping for you, Billy. When we read this poem, or this passage of Scripture today, James and John... They're two of the disciples of Jesus. They're two of the three closest. Peter, James, and John are kind of a triad, and, they, and they're close to Jesus. And here you have James and John. And the gospel accounts, there's a couple of different gospel accounts of this story that give us different details, each one. And one of them gives us the detail that James and John are the ones who asked their mother to go talk to Jesus. So they put mom up to this right? And so they and their mother, they go and they ask Jesus a question. And Jesus' reply to them initially is, you don't know what you're asking. And so on this Mother's Day, which is a day to celebrate motherhood, but it's also a day to think about that place that all of us share where we live our lives in some respect in service to other people and, and, and asking for help from other people that we know what it is to give care and we know what it is to be cared for, that so much of what makes up those relationships, we just don't know what we're asking. We don't know what we're asking. And so that's what I want to focus on in this passage is Jesus saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Today is Mother's Day. Our passage involves a mother asking something from Jesus on behalf of her kids. And whether you're a parent or you're a friend or you're a leader or you're someone who asks God for things on behalf of other people, a person who prays, in other words, this passage at the same time sobers us and encourages us. So I want to get into it by way, many of you know that a number of years ago I became gravely ill and I'm not going to belabor the entire story except to say this. When we started having kids, my wife and I, almost 20 years ago, we would pray a prayer for our kids. And each of us prayed it in different ways. But the prayer from my heart was to the effect of, Lord, I, I ask that you would give my children a seriousness of heart. In a world that can be so flippant and so dismissive and so 140 characters at a time, cultivate in my kids a sense of gravity, the importance so I pray that prayer. You pray prayers like that. You pray prayers like that for your kids. If you have them, you pray prayers like that for friends, for yourself. And I would submit to you that when we pray those prayers, we don't really know what we're asking. It's not a reason not to pray it. It's just an observation. Because part of the way the Lord answered the prayer for me, for my kids, was I became very, very sick. And my children had to watch me 
go from being strong and resilient to being weak and frail and fragile. From being the person who cared for them to being somebody who needed them to care for me. And so one of the ways the Lord saw fit to answer that prayer of mine, of giving them a seriousness of heart, was putting them in a place where they were watching me suffer. And so they worried. And they wondered, each in their own way. And they processed what they understood about my condition, each in their own way. And God used my suffering to introduce to them a hunger to see everything touched by the fall restored in some way. I did not know what I was asking. When we intercede for those we love, when we ask the Lord to work in their lives, we don't know how the Lord will do that work. Knowing what he will do is far less important than knowing who he is. And that's kind of the heart of this whole conversation. His ways are not our ways, but he doesn't change. And so my thesis for today is since we can't know what we're asking, it is vital that we know who we're asking. And today's passage unpacks this for us. James and John, they have this, this question they want to ask Jesus. It's really more of an idea. They have this idea that Jesus is going into glory and that there are going to be places at his right and his left. And perhaps those places are open. And if they are, if no one's called shotgun, then they want dibs, right? And so they go in and they send their mother to ask the question, grant that James and John, my sons, may sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. And their mother agrees, which is classic, right? That's a classic mother move. Jesus gave these brothers, James and John, they have a nickname in scripture called the Sons of Thunder. You heard of this? They're called, James and John are called the Sons of Thunder. One little interesting detail in the Bible it's in, uh, let's see, it's in Mark 3.17, is that they got the, Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. So they're the Sons of Thunder because Jesus nicknamed them that. He's the one. Which is interesting now because what does that make his parents? Their parents, right? Are they Thunder itself? They had these fiery personalities, these Sons of Thunder, James and John. Luke 9 records a passage where Jesus and the disciples went into a Samaritan village that was inhospitable to them. And James and John are the ones who went to Jesus and they said, idea, why don't you call down fire from heaven and burn this place to the ground? (laughs) The sons of thunder. And they're asking this question, and I I want us to see that it's not a foundation-less question. There's a legitimacy to the question they're asking because they've been with Jesus for a while. They've seen things. They've heard things. And so consider the context of of this question that they're asking because they're asking it as they are traveling to Jerusalem where Jesus will be arrested. It's at the end of his earthly ministry. He's about to be arrested during the Passover week. That's when they're going. And they ask this question on the road, on the way. But think of the context for them. What have James and John experienced? What have they seen? Well, they recently witnessed the transfiguration. 
They were with Peter and they saw the Lord transfigured into this brilliant light and a voice from heaven come down, right? And they, and, and they, they, they saw this thing happen. They knew that Jesus was particularly special to God. They knew, we read in John 4, that the reign of the Messiah was beginning. They, they knew that Jesus had a special place for his people in glory, that he was preparing a place for them. We read about this in Matthew 17 and also in John 14. And on top of all that, on top of the transfiguration, Jesus was special to God, reign of Messiah was beginning, uh, Jesus was preparing a special place for his disciples in glory, Jesus had just taught on the heavenly rewards that included the promise, specifically included the promise of thrones for the 12 disciples. You read about that in Matthew 19, verses 27 to 29. And so James and John knew they knew they were special to Jesus. They knew they were on the inside with him and that he took them and Peter to places that the others didn't get to go. So in their mind, they're not thinking, how can the two of us have a place of privilege among the 12? They're thinking, how can the two of us have a place of privilege among the three? How can we box Peter out, the three of them? The three of them who went into Jairus' home when his daughter had died and Jesus raised her from the dead. And so their request originated from a vantage point. They're not pulling it out of the blue. They put pieces together. They were already close to Jesus. And in a lot of ways, what they're doing is they're saying, we're close to you now, we want to be close to you forever. We're at your side now, and we want to stay at your side for all eternity. They wanted to be as close to him as they could be always. And so their question is coming from this certain perspective, but it's a perspective that Jesus explodes. And it's this, and perhaps it's a perspective that you share. At the heart of their request lies this developing understanding of the relationship between service and reward. What is the relationship between service and reward? For the believer, for the follower of Christ, what is the relationship between service and reward? They'd been serving Jesus and they were ready to, to discuss what they would get in reward for that. They were, in a way, kids presenting Jesus with their lanyard, right? As a parent, I find myself thinking along these lines routinely. I'm sure if you're a parent, you do too. And it's this. God, if I do A, then you will do B, right? If I do this, you will do this. If I let my kids see me reading my Bible, you will give them a love for Scripture. If I pray over them, you will give them a hunger for prayer themselves, right? Just like riding a bike. I hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, and then I take my hands off, and they're doing it on their own, and they're never going to forget it. They're going to do it for the rest of their lives, right? Lord, if I overcome this besetting sin that is secret to me, 
you will spare them from pain. The converse, if I continue, you will bring pain upon my children. If I don't read my Bible enough, they will have contempt for Scripture. If I don't pray over them enough, they won't even want to know you. Service begets reward. Does that relate to any of you? Parenting, friendships, dating life, service and reward. If I do A, God owes me B. Is this what faith boils down to for you? There's this moral sense that you can avoid trouble through good conduct or that God is somehow constrained by the principles of karma. That God is indebted to karma. He's bound by it. You get good for doing good. You get bad for doing bad. Service and reward. Is that what drives you? In work, faith, parenting, love. I think, here's the thing. I think all of us, in some measure, hold the spiritual view that what I do earns me things from God. In some measure. I don't think, I just think we live in a culture where that's just the way we think. And that's the way we're wired. Is this what Christianity is? This is what Christianity is about? Is the point of following Christ to serve him in exchange for a reward? And if so, what happens then when your world gets turned upside down? And then what if God is the one turning your world upside down? What do you make of that? James and John, when they ask this question, when they send in their mother to ask this question, they have no idea what's coming. They just don't. Neither does their mother. But Jesus does. Since we can't know what we're asking, it is vital to know who we're asking. So let's talk about these two and what's coming. Jesus asked James and John, can you drink from the same cup that I'm going to drink? And their answer reveals their ignorance. They say, of course. They don't say, what do you mean? What's the cup you're talking? They just say, yeah, we'll do whatever. We're good for it, you know. Can you drink from the same cup? Not understanding that what he's talking about is he's talking about his own impending death. He's talking about his suffering. And they say, we can. And then here's how Jesus replies. He says, actually, you will. You will. And he was right. He knows everything. Jesus knew what lay ahead for these two brothers. What lay ahead for them. They kind of bookend the story of the apostles. If you take Judas out. James was the first martyr, first apostle to be martyred. John lived longer than any of the others. 
James, who was in Jairus' daughter's bedroom when Jesus raised her from the dead, who was present at the transfiguration, that James is summarily beheaded by Herod Agrippa II in Acts 12, and his death is given one verse. That's it. John was a first-hand witness to the crucifixion. He was the first apostle to arrive at the empty tomb. He was later exiled blind to the island of Patmos where he saw what is recorded in the book of Revelation. John, one of the sons of thunder who's asking, hey, can we sit at your right and your left hand? Only days later, would be looking at his Lord being crucified and would hear Jesus say to him, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. As he entrusts to John the ongoing care of his mother Mary. Knowing what was coming, Jesus dealt with the sons of thunder gently. What they wanted was right. In a way, it was to be at Jesus' side. They wanted to be at Jesus' side. They wanted to be always holding his attention. They wanted to always be great in glory. But before that happened, their lives would be turned upside down, and Jesus knew it, and they didn't, but it was coming. Jesus knows what awaits these two. He knows how they're going to suffer, how they're going to suffer much, and how they're going to share in his death. They are going to drink from the cup of his suffering. And in the process of doing it, they're going to be brought into his life. But they did not know what they were asking. At the heart of our wrestling is often this desire to chart the course of our lives or the lives of those we love, to write the script and to say, this is how it should go, to live singularly focused on keeping to that script. Raise these people up that I love to do great things for your kingdom. Not remembering that often those who are raised up to do great things for the kingdom of God suffer much. Do we know what we're asking? Our Lord deals often with a severe mercy. We ask for things, and his mercy is sometimes in the answer, but often it's in the silence as well. There's so much that we can't see from our vantage point, so much that we do not know. Remember, these brothers were following Jesus because he called them to be his followers. You could look at these guys and say, man, James and John are the kind of people that just would I don't even know how Jesus let them become followers. They seem obnoxious. They seem kind of just like they're just unwieldy. But remember, Jesus is the one who called them. He's the one who called them. In other words, he sought them. He bid them come. The sons of thunder from the thunder family were among the kind of people Jesus wanted around. What have we to fear in our own various levels of cluelessness? Jesus came to serve the weak, the loud, the sick, the foolhardy, the obnoxious, the mama's boys, the daddy's girls, and all who would be his people. 
So what changed for James and John? What took them from being the sons of thunder jockeying for position in heaven to martyrdom and exile? In other words, how did Jesus answer the request? Grant that my sons would be at your right and your left. He didn't give them his right and his left. That wasn't his to give, but he did give them his presence for all eternity. How did that happen? Well, consider what they had witnessed. They witnessed Jesus' miracles. They were there for his teaching. They saw the polarizing effect he had on the religious establishment. They saw the way Jesus seemed to know that he was headed to death. They saw his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial. They saw Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his many appearances to the disciples in the days that followed. They witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 40 days later where Jesus told them that they were his witnesses. Witnesses to what? To the love and the mercy and the grace of God so freely poured out and lavished upon his people. They witnessed the arc of Jesus' story not as they imagined it to be when they were young, but as Jesus knew it would be. Their lives had become so enveloped in the love and the grace of God poured out over them that they were no longer driven by their earlier economy of service and reward, but by what the Apostle Paul called the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If what drove our lives, if what informed our lives and our views of ourselves and held our affection and our sense of worth wasn't a reward based on service, but rather the overwhelming joy of knowing and resting in how wide and high and deep and long is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, what impact would that have then on us when our lives get turned upside down? When Jesus is not answering the prayer in the way that we asked him to. The gospel doesn't promise us a trouble-free life. Jesus said it as plainly as he could, in this world you will have trouble. But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord over every corner of that world. And that to the glory of his Father. And that means you and I are not responsible for holding our lives together. And I'm not responsible for holding together the lives of those that I love. And I will tell you, if you try, sorrow upon sorrow is what awaits because you can't and I can't. You're not responsible to hold your life together or anybody else's. When that's the case, then you are free and you are free to trust and rest in the one who holds all things together by the strength of his power. And so I I close with this. When we ask the Lord to move in our lives or of the lives of those we love, we don't know all that we're asking. When we ask God for maturity, he brings growth. When we ask him for deeper love, he often reveals how the idols we love instead fail us. 
when we ask for an eternal place with him, he somehow reminds us that the way involves taking up a cross. And yet, for all the struggles this life holds, when we share in his cup, we share not only in his death, but in his resurrection. For all that we don't know, he knows. And he is good all the time. He's proven this to us. And so may the Lord give all of his sons and daughters of thunder the courage and the faith and the confidence to rest in how long and how wide and how deep and how high is the love of God in Christ Jesus so that we may, as the Apostle Paul wrote, rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Pray with me. Lord, you are merciful and gracious. You are in full authority and control over what happens in your universe. And we, Lord, do not always understand how you're moving, but help us to remember that even when we don't understand, it doesn't mean that you're not moving. And even when it looks backward to us or not what we expected or not what we hoped, that we would remember that you are good to your people and that you are good all the time. We're thankful for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. As we prepare to come to the communion table, which is this table where we remember the cup that you drank from, the cup you gave to us to share with you. It is a cup of following you in life and in death and in resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty and your power. Thanks for not writing off the bold children who present you with lanyards thinking that it somehow makes us even. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.